The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We want to look today at the six days of creation. And as I've shared several times, uh, largely the purpose of this writing, this chapter 1 of Genesis, was to begin shaping in the hearts and minds of its readers a worldview radically and dramatically different than the worldview of their day. And uh, because we have been the long recipients of this worldview, oftentimes we, we kind of miss the significance of how radical these statements are. Uh, also, they just have a lot of familiarity to us, and so they can lose their impact. So we want to kind of go back and look through... Uh, the kind of worldview that God is seeking to shape in the minds of those who would know and worship and follow Him. So let's look through briefly, and we're going to kind of fly through a lot of material here. So hang on, I'm going to do this really quick. Um, there's a lot of there's six whole days. Uh, first of all, we're going to break it into two sections. We're going to look at the story of creation. When I use the word story, I don't mean I don't think it's true. I believe it's absolutely true, but it's told as a story, as a narrative. Uh, so what, what is the, the story of creation? And then we'll go back and we'll look at the message behind the story, what God is, is teaching us. Uh, so first of all, the story. And uh, there's some things about the structure of Genesis 1 that's very helpful to learn or to know. Uh, if you can read Hebrew, you can figure this out on your own. But uh, uh, otherwise, let me just share with you some very fascinating things about Genesis chapter 1. It is a very carefully crafted piece of verse. Literally every single word in this chapter was chosen very uniquely and specifically. And it was probably, it's probably one of the most carefully crafted pieces of literature in, the, in all of Scripture. It's technically not poetry, uh, although many parts of it are very poetic. Uh, it's really not strict prose either because it's, it's so well structured and put together. Uh, in this chapter, literally every word counts. And in fact, the, uh, the repetition of sevens and multiple sevens are seen throughout this passage. Uh, the author very carefully not only put together what words, but how many words he used to describe creation. For example, uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis 1, 1 has seven words. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2 has 14 words. Okay. Two, two sets of seven. Verses one through three have 35 words. Okay, so again, multiples of seven. Uh, God is mentioned in this chapter 35 times, a multiple of seven. Earth is mentioned 21 times, a multiple of seven. Heaven, 21 times. The phrase God saw it was good is mentioned seven times. So the author took great pains with every word. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of other Hebrew little tricks that we tend to miss in our English translation uh, of inverting phrases and words, and uh, we'll look at some of those uh, in more detail, but not all. The point is, the other did is just sit down and randomly write stuff, okay? This was very carefully crafted, very carefully organized and structured so that every word was part of this grand picture or scheme portraying creation. Uh, additionally, the, the, the chapter breaks down into two cycles of three days each. And I've got those cycles up here. Uh, these cycles are parallel and correspond. 
So, for example, on, on day one, God created light. Uh, on day four, he created the luminaries. He put the sun and moon and stars in the sky. Day two, he creates the sky and he separates the waters above from the waters below. On day five, he fills the sky and he fills the oceans with birds and with fish. Day three, he creates land and plants. Day six, he creates animals and man. Uh, each corresponding to its day. Each cycle begins simple and gradually expands or builds. In other words, in both cycles, it moves towards a, a bit of a climax. All right? So in days one, two, and three, light is kind of bland and simple. Uh, the, the, the phrase God created light is the shortest in all the creation accounts. Up to day three, where God actually has a dual act of creation. So on day three, he forms both the dry land as well as all the vegetation. So two great acts of creation. Uh, same cycle begins on day four. It starts with very simple. Uh, day four, I mean, we, liter, in, in a literary sense, it's simple. Putting the stars in the sky was not simple, okay? But liter, speaking in terms of its literary form, it's simple. Uh, it moves to a climax on the sixth day where, again, a double act of creation where God creates the animals, and then a unique creating work making uh, man. All right? So it's moving somewhere. That's the point. These days are not just random. They're not just uh, some kind of chron chronolo chronological order because it flows well scientifically. Okay? And again, uh, <coughs> this speaks nothing of science. Okay? And, those reading it would have, not underst would have understood nothing of a scientific order to things. They saw a very different kind of pattern and structure, and this follows that pattern and structure. Uh, the two days, the first uh, three days, the first cycle, really stands as some kind of a backdrop. So if you can imagine a, an artist painting a picture, first thing, and I'm not an artist and I don't paint, but hopefully Sharon can verify this for me, that you start by painting the background first, right? Broad kind of vague, abstract colors and forms, maybe formless. Uh, and then you go back and you fill in the, the foreground, the detail. Well, that's really what, what's pictured here. Days 1, 2, and 3 is very much the backdrop of creation, very much the behind-the-scenes thing that's required for days 4, 5, and 6 to come about. And uh, those days are very carefully uh, co coordinated so that each day corresponds to its, its matching day. Um, it builds uh, to a point, and it's important to see that in this story, certainly the pinnacle of creation is man. All right? Man is, is among the creature. He's not the center of creation, but he's certainly the pinnacle of it. Uh, creation was not made for man, but man certainly stands at the top of the pyramid, or... We could say at the top of the food chain, right? If you want to look at it that way. <clears throat> of course, the seventh day, which is part of this narrative, and uh, sadly the Bible separates in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, making it seem like a separate section. But in reality, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 would be a part of the original creation story or narrative. So the, it really goes down through verse 3. However, the seventh day definitely stands alone. Uh, it doesn't fit within the uh, six-day structure. It is by design a standalone day. And uh, we'll look at how that fits and why as we, uh, as we get to the day of rest. 
So that's the structure just briefly. Um, the first, and then we're going to look through the first, uh, th first three days and then the second three days in that order. And the first three days we would really call or identify as kind of the building blocks to life. Okay, uh, God is, again, with his canvas painting the backdrop so that life can be sustained. And it's broken down into three days. And the first day God creates... You can look at your Bibles if you want to cheat. God creates light. Light. Uh, he doesn't create sun and moon yet. At least they're not visible. Light shows up. And uh, he says it's good. Uh, as with each step of creation, he pronounces its goodness, its fitness. And then he divides the day and the night, and he names these two things. Okay, and he names the, the, the light day and the darkness night, right? Uh, now, this, we all know this. We've all read this a lot. And it's like, okay, well, that's real nice. So what? You know, what does it mean? Well, the significance of, the, of light, and specifically day and night, is that it marks the beginning of creation of the world with the sequencing of time. Really what the first day is talking about is really the invention of time. Okay, days start being marked off. There is day and there is night. All right? Now for us, again, the significance of that just kind of goes by us. It's like, well, okay, so we have day and night. So what? What's the big deal? Well, this is revolutionary stuff. Okay? Again, we don't get the revolution of, of it because of our worldview. But uh, imagine, and it's not hard for us to imagine, because we actually live in a place that doesn't follow this worldview. Okay, if you come from an Asian context, especially a Thai or Buddhist or Hindu context, life is not, there's no beginning. Okay? On day one was day one. Uh, there was day, there was night. It's, it's like... Uh, the, the days and night are the pendulum of a great clock that all of a sudden God set in motion and time began to tick. Click, clock, day, night. And there was a first day. Now that's significant because if you look at worldviews that would have been true in Mesopotamia, Egypt, have carried on today into places like India and Thailand and Hinduism and Buddhism. It's a, a radical contrast between a life that goes in circles, a never-ending wheel with no beginning and end, versus a life and an existence that had a very specific, clear beginning. Okay, that's radical stuff. Why is it radical? You're still going. I can still. I can just feel the shock is not. Nobody's going. Oh, wow, that is so cool. I'm so glad I I didn't know that. Well, picture this, uh, or ask yourself this question: Why is it Buddhists are so eager? to become nothing. Okay, that's the goal of Buddhism, right? To, to dissolve into nothingness. Okay, why? Why is that such a great alternative? And I look at that, I think, you know, becoming nothing, uh, reaching nirvana and just becoming neither good, evil, up, down, in, out, alive, just becoming nothing, doesn't sound all that appealing to me. Okay, I, I can't say I'm all that excited about that trip. Why is that such a big deal? Well, the reason is because being on a never-ending Ferris wheel, a never-ending merry-go-round of endless cycles with no beginning and no end is absolute despair. 
Okay, there's nothing more despairing, discouraging, or hopeless than knowing that life is nothing more than an endless, ongoing cycle. Okay, this is what it means. And this is what this means. It means, you know, we all, most of you, there's still some younger kids here, most of us have survived seventh grade. Okay? Okay, if you believe in life as a wheel, it means you survived it this time, but you've got to go through it again. Seventh grade comes again. And then it comes again. And it comes again, and it comes again, and it comes again, and it comes again. Forever! You've got to keep doing seventh grade. Ah! Okay, that's despair. All right? Now, for those of you who haven't done it yet, don't worry, okay? You only have to do it once. Praise God. Okay? There's nothing good about the picture of life being endless cycles. And not only endless cycles, but ultimately meaningless cycles. Of just going around, life goes around, you're born, you die, you're born again, you die, you're born again, you die, and it never ends. No wonder Buddhists are so desperate to escape. No wonder, because there is no hope. There is absolute despair. And you may go up the ladder, you may go down the ladder, but it doesn't matter. You just keep going around and around and around to no end, to no purpose, to no meaning. That was the world that the early Israelites lived in. It's a world that a lot of the Eastern world today lives in. And God said, no. Life is not a never-ending cycle, a never-ending spinning wheel. There was a first day. There is the mark of time. It goes in a direction and a procession, and one day it will end. There is a first day implies there will be a last day. The clock is ticking. All right. Now, that also has a certain message of despair, by the way. You're born, you die. And there's not a second chance. There's not a second lap. There's no coming back and doing over. Okay, Life is a journey moving in a clear direction. But it's a journey with a purpose. God saw the light and he said it was good. Okay, The light was designed for a fit and clear purpose and design. Uh, time was set in motion for a clear and purpose uh, design. A purpose, a meaning. Our lives are going in a direction. And there is great hope in that. There is great hope in that. Life is going somewhere. And that's what day one means. That's the significance of day one. And it was radical in... in, uh, It was radical. It was actually unheard of when this was written. Okay, this was a... This was... This was Einstein's theory of relativity. Okay? This was revolutionary. Okay, there's time. And time is moving one way, and it's going somewhere. Uh, Second day, uh, God separated the waters above from the waters below. All right, we've talked about this a bit. Uh, Aside from their understanding of how all this worked, uh, the point is that God created oceans, and he created the sky, he created the clouds, he created ultimately... What this is talking about is God created weather. God made and set in motion this great system to water the earth. All right? uh, there is, and of course we understand that much better now is this cool system. doesn't mean any less that God was the one who designed and created it because they couldn't explain it. But the point is, it rains. Now again, I don't see anybody going, hallelujah, I'm so excited, you know. Uh, of course it rains. You know, that's what the world does. It rains, it snows, 
I'm riding my motorbike. I get soaking wet. It's not that great, right? Well, what's the significance of weather? Well, again, if you are living in this time and in this day and in this age, not our time, but in the writing of Genesis, rain is everything. You live in a dry desert climate in, in, in Israel and in Palestine. Uh, rain is everything. If it rains, you live. If it doesn't rain, you die. It's just that simple. Uh, rain is the most important factor in their life. And uh, they are constantly worried about this. Every year they plant their crops and they wonder, is it going to rain? Are there going to be crops? Is there going to be a harvest? Of course, sometimes it rains too much, which is also a problem. And uh, how do you control this? Uh, who, who controls the knobs on this thing called weather? Well, God makes it very clear that He created it, and He put it in motion and put it in place uh, for a reason, for a purpose and for a design. And that God will send a steady rain to support and nurture life on the earth. And so every year we can count on the rains coming and the dry seasons coming and the rains coming again. And the good news is that for these past thousands of years, every year it rains. It has yet to stop, praise God. It snows in places where it snows. And the system works brilliantly. All right. Um, third day, God creates dry land and plants. Uh, he sorts out and separates out the water, collects it into one place, and the focus here is the formation of dry land. Um, as each phase of creation goes, it moves from heaven toward earth, and uh, it becomes more focused and specific. And this is the third day. It is the climax of this uh, creation cycle. And the focus really is the land and the plants. Okay? That's the highlight of it all. We move from heaven to the earth, from earth to the land. And God made dry land, and then the, he called forth uh, vegetation. Literally, he says, let the sprouting things sprout. Let the earth bring forth the sprouting things. And things started sprouting up everywhere. Plants and bushes and shrubs and trees and grass and herbs. Every green thing, right? Uh, it is in our book, as we see things would be considered the first signs of life. However, Israelites wouldn't have seen it that way. Okay, to them, uh, vegetation was much more connected with the earth than with biology. And in fact, in, uh, in, in Genesis 1, it doesn't start using the term living things until we get to fish and birds. Okay, so this is still considered connected to the earth. These are the things that sustain life, not that are life. And of course, we're not going to dispute the... You know, the their concept here, as we said before, God uses the language of accommodation. Um, what is this about? What is the significance of this? Um, the significance is that God here, what he's talking about here, what he's creating, what he's forming and shaping, is the means of agriculture. All right, so, so you have time ticking, you have the seasons moving forward, you have rain, now we have dry land and seed. Okay, now if you are living back in this day and age where everybody was tied to the land and everybody was a farmer or very directly connected with farming, this is all good news. Okay, this is all exciting stuff. This is stuff that just jazzes you up. Okay, now the fact that we all go to Lotus and, uh, you know, we are so far removed from dirt for the most part, 
Um, you know, it doesn't really get us too excited. But this was good news for these people. They're going, wow, God made land. He's given us land. And he's created this amazing process where you take little tiny seeds and you stick it in dirt and the rain comes down and the sun shines and presto, stuff grows. And then you go down later and you kill it, you whack it off and you eat it. And life goes on, right? And so you see here these three great systems of time, uh, weather, land, and plants, okay? Again, these are the backdrops of what? Well, of life. These are the things necessary to support and sustain life. Uh, In this section, it also uh, makes it very clear that God created all of these things according to their kind. Uh, Okay, seed-bearing plants. And it was significant that they were seed-bearing for two reasons. One, so that they could be multiplied and cultivated. Uh, That was the part of agriculture. You can take seeds, you can put it in the ground, and they reproduce, they multiply. You can grow stuff. Also, it's significant that they bear seeds because, uh, you know, when I think about seeds, I think like of tomato seeds and apple seeds. But really what he's talking about here are seed-bearing plants like rice and wheat. These are the main staples of life. Okay, the grains that, uh, you know. Now, now of course, for us in the West, the main staple is beef or something, meat. But in most of the world, you know, it's bread or it's rice. It's, It's the main staple. So here again, we're sustaining life. The things that make life work and grow. And each according to its kind. In other words, God made all the kinds. He made all the kinds. Now, I don't want to waste, waste a lot of time debating evolution. But let me just say a quick word here about evolution. Um, the Bible makes it very clear that God created each according to its kind. Uh, that, that God did this. Um, what about evolution? You know, evolution claims that every living thing came from one common ancestor, which in itself is rather interesting. Uh, They say that this common ancestor, the single cell that sprung to life many billions of years ago, uh, began to multiply and divide and adapt. And uh, adapted from a cell to a complex cell to a bigger cell to a multiple cell, and soon there were plants and marine life and fish and birds and animals. And to this day, animals are still adapting and evolving. Okay, and that, that's, that's the history of how we got here. A great cosmic accident of proteins and chemicals that stuck together and poof, here we are. Okay, that's evolution. Uh, Now, if you talk to anybody, especially not a believer, and even quite a few believers, they'll tell you that there's absolute scientific proof for this. That this is demonstrable, hardcore science. Uh, For example, the the proof they will tell you is that we see evolution taking place around us every day. And there are are examples of this. Uh, Everything around us is adapting and changing. There are uh, animals adapting. We see this with dogs and cabbage, all kinds of things that adapt and can be actually generate new species. And they've got a word for this. It's called speciation. Speciation is a good word. And it means that even today, new species are being formed. And there's examples of this. There's a fish called the, uh, what is it called? The spickleback, no, the triple, sp- I don't know what it's called. There's a little fish. <laughs> I lost it in my nose. Um, it's a little fish that's uh, spickle, three, three-spined spickleback. 
something stickleback. There it is. Three-spined stickleback. Um, and it's evolving into new species. Okay? Uh, they've done experiments with fruit flies where they've taken fruit flies and they've fed one group of fruit flies bananas and another group of fruit flies steak. I'm not sure exactly what they sped them, but uh, uh, pretty soon you got beef-eating fruit flies and vegetarian fruit flies, and so they call that a new species, right? And what, what defines these as new species is this, that the beef-eating fruit flies will no longer mate with the vegetarian fruit flies, okay? They, they won't marry, they don't get married, they don't even date, okay? <laughs> they each go their separate ways, and therefore they are a new species, same, same thing with the little fish. Okay, you got these little fish who now no longer mate. Okay, they're not interested in each other because of something. I don't know what. And so now it's a new species. That's what classifies a new species. Okay? And scientists tell us, therefore, see, evolution is happening, and it's hardcore science, and you can't refute that. Right? Well, what do we do with that? Is it, is it, could it be that the Bible is wrong? Could it be that the writer of Genesis was confused? And in fact, God did not create all this stuff after it kind of has evolved. Well, first of all, let me just say that if it could be proved that evolution is true, and that it all came from one single cell, and it all has adapted and evolved over time, and that proof here we are, it doesn't change anything about what's written in Genesis 1. Okay, Genesis 1 gives room for that. Uh, there, there's space for that. And we don't have to stress out if if people say, well, it all evolved, they say, well, great, it all evolved. But it clearly evolved with a design and a purpose, implying a designer and someone who had a purpose for it. Okay, it doesn't take God out of the picture. Uh, however, has science really proved evolution true? Well, I won't go into all the reasons why. I don't think so. But no, it hasn't. Okay, it hasn't. Uh, there is no clear scientific evidence or support that backs up this whole elaborate scheme called evolution. And you've got to know and believe that. Now, it may be that they do come up with evidence. I don't know. Maybe they will. But to date, there's no true scientific proof. And here's four of about 4,000 problems with the theory. First of all, science has no, absolutely no scientific explanation, proof or evidence of how the first cell came about. Okay, there is no good, scientifically supportable evidence for the generation of a single cell from, from, from dust, from chemical components. Okay, if you can't get the first cell, then the whole rest of the story is moot. All right? It doesn't mean anything. Now, now and if you talk to any science person who knows their science, they will, they'll verify this. That's right. We have no idea. And... The explanations are absolutely bizarre. I mean, my favorite one is that it came from aliens. Okay, this is science. Okay, this is science. Well, aliens zapped it here, the first cell, right? Okay, we're supposed to respect science, right? We're the ones who are the idiots. Okay, I'll take that. Okay, there's no clear scientific proof or evidence for that first ancestor. And then scientists will tell you, well, it came from one ancestor. Well, where did the one ancestor come from? Well, they can't tell you that. Okay, so that, that crumbles the whole theory okay, from then on out. Problem two, adaptation and speciation is not evolution. Okay? Just because a fruit fly won't mate with another fruit fly does not mean a fruit fly is now a bat. Okay? Granted, we see new species, but always within a given class. 
Okay, there's absolutely no evidence anywhere, no support, no scientific evidence that shows fruit flies becoming dragonflies, okay, or any other kind of fly. A fruit fly is a fruit fly is a fruit fly, okay, and whether it eats meat or vegetables or has ten eyes or two eyes or whatever, it's still a fruit fly. And there's no evidence anywhere that supports crossover, large leaping bounds from one class of creature to another, right? A problem... Uh, and there's, there's just no evidence. It does not exist. Okay? What we call speciation is true. It's not evolution. All right? It just means that God has created creatures to adapt well, to change, to take on new characteristics. Okay? Even, on a, even on a cellular level, bacteria which adapt at rapid speed okay, and speciate at a rapid speed, Still, bacteria become bacteria, become bacteria, become bacteria, millions of times over. Bacteria never become algae or any other kind of living organism. Okay? If evolution was true, on a, on a, especially on a molecular scale, a cell level, we should be seeing this happen every day. Okay? Every day we should look under the microscope and see bacteria turning into the early cells of a plant. It just doesn't happen. There's no scientific evidence or proof. Problem number three, uh, there's no explanation for what's driving this push to ever greater levels of complexity and diversity. Okay, why, why are there humans? Clearly, f extremely complex and sophisticated multi-cell beings with very complicated systems. Okay, the whole point of adaptation is that it's adapting to its environment. Okay. There's no explanation for why we're better adapted to our environment than a bacteria. The reality is if, if it's all about being better suited and adapted to our environment, the highest, most adaptable things are bacteria. So we should all be evolving into bacteria, not human beings. Okay? There's no scientific explanation and there's no laws that explain this move towards greater complexity. Okay? In fact, science really, and, and all the laws of nature, would, would argue in the other direction. Lastly, the fourth problem, and you know, this is the big one, where, where are all these intermediary creatures? You know, if we've evolved over the years from one thing to another thing to another thing, where are these, where are these creatures? Um, you know, here's the deal. If, if adaptation drives it, you know, evolutionists will tell you that uh, whales come from cows, Right? Well, what drove a cow living on the land where there's lots of green grass and stuff to eat, what drove this cow to go off and start wading in the ocean and start eating plankton? Okay, which is exactly what they'll tell you happened. That, you know, cows started, you know, living in the water and eating plankton, and pretty soon, you know, their nose, instead of being on the front, moved up to their forehead, and soon to the back of their neck so that they could breathe better, right? Uh, and thus, cows became whales. Well... Well, that's all great and well, but, you know, I've never seen a cow with its nose here, right? Never. They're always in the front. Okay, same with every other animal, for that matter. The nose is below the eyes, above the mouth. Amazing uniformity across all the species. So where are these intermediary phases? We should see them every day today. We should see all kinds of creatures that are halfway between, you know, halfway between fish and lizard, halfway between cow and whale, halfway between, you know, we should see trees with legs. Uh, they don't exist. And of course, they'll come up with all these elaborate theories for why they don't exist. 
and uh, none of, of which is science. Okay, none of which is supportable by documentable, provable evidence. Um, and of course, the thing is, not only is it not visible now, but there's no record in the fossil record of these intermediary stages. Okay, there's no clear evidence of uh, you know these fish becoming birds on large scale, of uh, of you know sea creatures crawling out on land and taking on legs. They don't exist. So that's um, so. Bottom line is, my point is, science in that realm is not science. It's myth. Okay, it's just theories that are completely unsupported and unsubstantiated by fact. Okay, and of course they'll come up with all these other scientific things like speciation and other cool big words. Uh, you know, it's all nonsense. So it makes to me a lot more sense that God just made them the way He made them. He made the creatures all after their kind. And that's why today, cows give birth to cows, give birth to cows. And dogs to dogs to dogs. You can create big dogs and little dogs. You can, can, by intelligent design, breed them to a certain trait. But you can never breed a dog to become a cat. It's still a dog, no matter what you do. And that's because that's the way God made it. God created those boundaries and those limits that we would all be after our kind. So the point of all this is that God created the backdrop, the stage for life. Then we go through the next three days. He brings life about. And uh, day five, he brings forth the sun and the moon. Interesting, he does not call them by name, but just says the greater light and the lesser light. Uh, he doesn't use their names because their names were the names of pagan gods. And so he chooses not even to name them. He just says the big light in the sky and the little light. The greater, the brighter one is the smaller one. And then he goes on to say that they were created with a purpose. And the purpose is twofold. One, to mark the seasons, years, and days. Okay? Secondly, to give you light. All right? That's the whole function of the stars. They weren't put there. And you know, people in ancient times believe that stars... Uh, spelled out your destiny, that they controlled the future. And uh, if you wanted a good destiny, you went, and people today still do this, you've got to make sure your stars line up, right? You've got to get the astral bodies all in place so that you have good karma or whatever. Uh, God says, it's just a calendar. It's a calendar and a light bulb. That's all it is, right? It's just servants of mine I put in place uh, to help regulate the universe and direct you to give seasons. It helps you know when to plant your crops. It helps you know when to harvest. It helps you know the times and the seasons. That's all. It's just a big calendar in the sky. The sun is simply a big lantern that gives you light. That's all. It is a servant of God. Then he moves on day five. He creates the fish and the fowl. And the language here is a language of abundant life. For the first time, God uses the word uh, living creatures. And now this sky that God separated out from the waters below are filled with life, teeming with life, bursting forth with life. Um, He even speaks about creating the great sea dragon, which they also feared and revered and worshipped. Many of their myths involved the gods battling these great sea monsters. God said, "It's it's just a big fish I made. That's all it is. It's part of my creation. And then finally, God... And the last day of creating brings forth uh, from the land, he brings forth every kind of living animal. 
and bug and reptile, all the things that crawl on the earth. And finally, man himself. And we're going to look next week at the unique role and place of man. Uh, he blesses them. He blesses, the, which by the way, he blesses the fish and the birds first. Gives them the ability to multiply, right? So that they can fill the earth with abundant life. Same with the animals. Be filled with abundant, right? Then he said, finally, he looked at it all and he said, this is very good. This is very good. Well, what does that all mean? Well, let me give you briefly just three things that this, this tells us about God. The, the, the message, if you will, or the point of the creation story. First of all, uh, by the way, did we get our, the, the video to work? It died. Okay, sad. I had a fun science video that I was going to show right now, but I don't, so I can't. Um, the message of creation. First thing, uh, you can trust in God to meet your needs. Okay, the point of all is you're reading this story, and you are a farmer. You are out working the land every day, and it is yours. It is your livelihood. You don't go to Lotus. You don't go to Carfu or Big C. You actually go, and you actually get your food from the ground. Okay, none of us do that. So for us, it's just kind of lost on us. But for people who live this way, it, t- it told them this. God has put all the systems in place to provide and sustain life for you. Okay? So you don't have to go pray to the sun. You don't have to appease the gods of the rain. You don't pray to the stars. You don't trust in these things. God is the one who's controlling it all. He is the provider and sustainer of life. And the point is you ought to be trusting in Him as creator. Right? You ought to be trusting in Him to provide the rain He's made it possible for the seed to grow and to sustain life. He set this up for you to live. When God created, He created so that life could be sustained. And He is the sustainer and provider of everything necessary for life. And so you don't have to worry about it. You just need to trust and look to God as your provider. <clears throat> well, what does this mean to us? Uh, you know, for those of us who do all of our shopping, who food for us comes off a shelf and is wrapped in plastic, right? And we zap it in the microwave or we go to the restaurant and order it. And some person just brings it already cooked. Hallelujah for Thai food. You know, it's just right there. Rice and all. However it got here, we don't really know or care, right? 20 baht and you've got cow pot. Right? What does this mean for us? Well, it means that the principle is the same. Who is the provider and sustainer of all of your life? Well, it ought to be God. The place we ought to look and trust and depend for all of life is God himself. All right? And we should not be looking to the gods of this world to be our sustainer and provider. What are the gods of this world? Well, I would say, and sadly my video kind of illustrates this, I would say science is one of those gods. You know, we look to science to be the solution to the problems of our life. Right? We get sick. Uh, we don't look to God to sustain and provide healing and strength. We, we look to science. Now, I'm not saying, okay, don't, please hear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't take advantage of science. Like, I believe in science. When I get a headache, I take pills. I, I believe in pills. Okay, I love pills. Okay, drugs are good. However, those should not be our final trust. 
Okay? How do we look to our financial security? You know, we look to savings and you know, uh, good bank accounts and healthy reserves and to insurance policies. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have insurance. I'm not saying those things are evil. But have those things become a substitute for trusting in God? Do we really trust God as a sole sustainer and provider of our life? Or do we take matters into our own hands and seek to trust in our own ability to provide for ourselves? Uh, how many of us would do what St. Francis of Assisi did? St. Francis of Assisi had had it with his wealthy father and his wealthy family and a wealthy church that was constantly blasting him. And one day he'd had enough and he tore the very shirt off his back and walked away from his family's wealth and from the church's wealth and walked out into the snow barefoot, without a shirt on, and said, I'm just going to live life depending on God. How many of us would do that? Well, obviously none of us would. How, how many of us would even go halfway there, right? How many of us would even go a fourth of the way there? That we would say, I'm going to live my life where God is my sole provider. Now here's the, here's the rug. You say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, but what about like my car, my cell phone, my iTouch, my computer, my DVD player, my camera? You know, international travel, health insurance, a bigger house, new kitchen, car, swimming pool. <sighs> what about that? Well, what about that? Interestingly, when God created the world and called it good, none of that existed. Right? Maybe life was intended to be much simpler. Maybe one of our problems is we need so much stuff that God had no intention of us ever having. Again, I'm not saying you should throw your computer off a 10-story building, even though most days I would love to do that with mine. I'm saying God probably called us to a life much simpler. One of our problems is not God's lack of provision. Our problem is we've made life far too complicated. We have made life far too dependent on electricity, far too dependent on science. Okay, God did not create life that way. He created a world where it would work fine without all, without all that stuff. Can we live without all, without all that stuff? Can we live with just God? Can we live with just God? Second, second principle, second message, is that life has meaning. With each step, God said it's good. It finally said it's very good. One of the scary things about science and about evolution is that if evolution is true, and by the way, when I say evolution, I mean the myth of evolution, not scientific fact, and the myth of naturalism that says uh, science is all there is and there is nothing else. Okay, There is no God. It all just evolved from cosmic space. Thus, you and I are just a cosmic accident. The end result of that is that life can have no meaning. Okay? Evolution just evolved because it evolved, not because it was directed or guided to an end. Okay, the reality is here's the truth, and I've you know I've told this to in debates with biology teachers, and it kind of unravels them. And you can use this one. Here's the absolute truth: if evolution is absolutely true, and there is no God, there's no creator, then the components, the, the chemicals, the stuff that makes you up, has no more meaning being a human being than being a pile of cow dung. Okay, being manure, it's all the same. It's just the arrangement of, of molecules. What difference does it make if it's manure or a person? 
It makes no difference. It makes no meaning. There is no purpose. There's nothing about life that gives it meaning. You were just an accident that shouldn't have happened, but it did, and you're going to someday die, and it won't matter. You will come and go, and whether you are arranged as a human being or as cow manure or as a piece of floor tile, it really doesn't matter. Okay? Now, how's that for something to live for? Okay, not only that, but it doesn't explain why I should have any control governing my life. Okay? It's interesting in this video, I couldn't show you, one of the charges of science is that religion has brought us things like child molesting priests, uh, which is a sad but true statement. Um, here's the interesting thing, though. If evolution and science is all there is, why does it matter that there's, only, that there's child abusing priests? It doesn't matter. We might as well all become uh, rapists, murderers, thieves, child abusers, because there's no meaning in it. There's no difference. If I kill you or kill you, you kill me, what difference does it make? Okay, I'm just rearranging your molecules into another form, less animated. right? And it makes me happier, so therefore, it's a good thing. Right? Goodness is defined on what serves me, and that's all. Okay? The world, sadly, because of evolution, is moving more and more in that direction. Morals are collapsing because there's no reason for morals. There's no reason for right or wrong. Right? That's why our biblical worldview is so critical and why it's true. Because we know inherently and instinctively as human beings that our life has meaning and that it does matter how we live it. Okay? Genesis tells us there's a creator who created with a purpose. He said it was good, which means it can be bad. God evaluates our life according to how it has fulfilled His purpose for which He designed and created it. And God looks at every one of our lives and He said, it is either good or it is not good based on how you measure up to the purpose for which He created you. Okay, our life does have meaning. And that meaning is defined by God, not by us. Finally, last thing, uh, all creatures... All of creation together was created for God. Uh, man is, not, is the pinnacle of creation, but it wasn't created for us. We are simply one part of this wonderful choir of all creation. Stars and sun and moon, the fish in the sea, the trees on the mountains, the streams and rivers, the plants and animals, that all together were created for what? To give praise and worship to God to honor and exalt God as the Creator. God looked and He said it was good. He took delight and wonder and joy in what He had created. He said, this is good. And all of it should sing together in praise and worship. Um, what that means is, of course, we don't worship creation. But we ought to see, we ought to see, we ought to see creation worshiping. The psalmist was great at this. The psalmist saw creation worshiping and saw the trees lifting up their hands in praise and called the creatures of the sea to praise God with us. Uh, one of the sad things that we have gotten so removed from the land is we no longer are partners in, in worshiping with creation. Uh, we've gotten so far removed from it. It's one of the fun things here. You know, We get to join with this, this uh, forest of trees like we're in a tree house that worships God with us every Sunday. And they lift up their hands and worship and they give glory to God. Uh, we need to reconnect 
our, our joint worship with creation. Uh, we've gotten so far removed from it. Uh, let me close with, uh, well, I have lots of hymns that speak to this. Let me close with this one, familiar one. All thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.